Hey there, it's Nick, and welcome to the Anamnesis podcast. Anamnesis is a podcast about history and medicine. In this episode, I want to talk about the Dutch hunger winter and the physical and metabolic impact it had on those affected by it. We're going to see how studies on famines like this have shed light on how insults to the fetus in the womb can affect adult health and even contribute to things like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So, let's start with the story. It was 1944 and the Allies had landed on mainland Europe. As part of their fight to free the continent from the Nazis, they managed to reclaim part of the Netherlands. With the help of the exiled Dutch government, they managed to convince railway workers in the German-occupied part of the country to stage large-scale strikes. This limited the movement of German forces and supplies. In retaliation, the Third Reich imposed an embargo on all food entering this part of the Netherlands. As a consequence, adult ration portions fell dramatically during this time to as little as 500 calories per day. To put that into perspective, that's only about two slices of pepperoni pizza from Domino's and is only about a quarter of a person's recommended daily intake. The famine period lasted nine months until the Allies liberated the rest of the Netherlands in May 1945. It's estimated that about 18,000 people died due to starvation during those dark times. This period in history is known locally as the Hunger Winter. It's also called the Dutch Famine. The thing about science is that it's inherently neutral. It doesn't matter whether an event was good or bad, or whether the motives behind it were pure or evil. All events can provide useful data. This, in turn, can be used for good. The same can be said of the Dutch Hunger Winter. You see, there were a significant number of the population that were exposed to the famine whilst they were still in the womb, or in utero, having been conceived just before or during the bleak winter. And due to the relatively short and well-defined timescale of the famine, researchers have been able to compare that cohort of individuals with people born just before or conceived just after the famine period. They even managed to compare siblings with siblings. These are children who were raised in, in exactly the same way as each other. They lived in the same towns, ate the same food, and even went to the same schools as each other. The only difference between them was the exposure to the famine in utero. Also, because the Netherlands was a first world country, it's been relatively easy to track down people many years later to check up on their health and to see the long-term impacts of this early insult. The short-term consequences of the famine are pretty much what you'd expect. Fertility was decreased, perinatal mortality was increased, and birth weight fell by about 300 grams on average. Also, as expected, all these figures quickly recovered after the breaking of the embargo. Now, the interesting part comes when you follow these people up long-term. One would generally expect a child with low birth weight to remain smaller throughout their life, much like the runt of a litter. In fact, the researchers found that the opposite is actually the case. People exposed to the famine in utero had a much higher rate of obesity compared with their siblings or people of similar generations. They also had a higher rate of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and even chronic lung disease. Some studies have even shown an increase in the rates of neurodevelopmental disorders, such as schizophrenia. Findings like this have been replicated in other studies on well-defined famines, and have led scientists such as Professor David Barker, down in Southampton, to come up with his fetal origins of disease hypothesis, whereby events that affect the developing fetus result in disease processes that affect health later on in life. I've been talking to Dr. Mandy Drake, consultant paediatric endocrinologist and researcher into fetal programming in the womb. 
She looks at how early fetal events affect health at later life. I asked her to explain the fetal origins hypothesis to us. I've uh, I've just got to apologise for the quality of the audio in this episode. Um, we were recording inside a cafe, and uh, you can hear someone desperately trying to make a cup of coffee in the background at some points. Um, I think what Dr. Drake has to say is really interesting, so please try and bear with it. Um, it'll definitely be worth it. The hypothesis um, suggested that the environment that you experience as a fetus in the womb or in early postnatal life um, can permanently alter perhaps tissue structure and function and increase your risk of disease later on in life. So the classic studies were all done looking at low birth weight and um, noting that individuals with a lower birth weight, still well within the normal range, are at higher risk of cardiometabolic risk factors such as type 2 diabetes, hypertension, but also of um, neuropsychiatric disorders as well. So exposure to an adverse environment as measured by low birth weight links in with those um, disease risks. Conversely, exposure to a higher birth weight, at least in those historical cohorts, seem to be relatively protective against those diseases. What we're seeing now is that actually babies born to who are born with a higher birth weight as a consequence of maternal obesity are also at increased risk of those cardiometabolic risk factors. So exposure to an adverse environment per se seems to alter your risk of disease. Many mechanisms have been proposed to explain the fetal origins hypothesis. One of those mechanisms, and one that Dr. Drake spends much of her time researching, is a field called epigenetics. I asked her to give us a bit of a rundown as to what that means. People may well know about genetics, um, that we have a large number of genes which will determine how tall we are, what colour our eyes are, what colour our hair is, etc. Some of which will also determine our disease risk. Um, but there is a, another layer of control, which is termed the epigenome which can determine whether genes are switched on or switched off. So, for example, if you think that the genes in all of our cells is all exactly the same, depending whether it's in your eye or your kidney or your skin, that the cells themselves are very different and serve very different functions. And part of what determines the functions of those individual cells is your epigenome. These are chemical marks on your genes which can affect how those genes work. And when that goes wrong, that can be associated with diseases such as cancer. And people have wondered whether if you alter those epigenetic marks, whether you can affect the way that your genes work. So we're talking, um, for people that have heard of this, about things such as methylation of the DNA, which is addition of a chemical group to the DNA, or changes to the proteins, the histone proteins that DNA is wrapped around, that changes how your genes work. To add a tiny bit more detail, you can think of your DNA as long strings inside the cell. And when I say long, I really do mean long. Um, it's estimated that each cell in our body contains about two meters of DNA. These strings are packed tightly into the central bit of the cell called the nucleus. And like headphones in your pocket or cables at the back of your TV, the DNA gets tangled on itself. This forms areas of highly dense knots and other areas of less dense genetic material. Now, the cell reads the genetic code on the DNA by using small molecular machines that physically crawl along each strand of the DNA. As you can imagine, they find it harder to access and attach to strands that are in densely packed areas, just simply because it's harder for them to fit. The opposite is true of loosely packed DNA. The epigenetic changes that uh, Dr. Drake mentioned, uh, things like methylation of DNA, are just ways that the cell regulates this packing of the strands. 
the cell is able to attach certain molecular groups, for example, the methyl group, to the DNA, to change how it interacts with other molecules in the cells. These other molecules are called histones, and they're used as scaffolds that the DNA wraps around in the nucleus, kind of like cable tidies. Methylation of DNA strings causes them to wind more tightly around these histones, and therefore have an effect of silencing the genes. Now, the traditional view of genetics is that your unique genetic code, your genome, was set in stone. Your genes would determine exactly how you would develop. For example, traits such as eye colour or hair colour tend to work this way. However, epigenetics gives us a mechanism through which the environment can actually affect the expression of our genome. This was an unprecedented coming together of both sides of the nature versus nurture argument that you've probably heard of. So epigenetics quickly gained much traction in various medical fields and soon became a frontrunner to explain the fetal origins hypothesis. A dangerous feature of humans is uh, the tendency to jump to conclusions. In the studies on cohorts of people affected by the Dutch famine, scientists have shown changes in their genetic makeup, their epigenome. In particular, they have found epigenetic changes that affect certain genes that encode hormones that are important in the body's metabolism. One of these is called IGF-2, that's uh, insulin-like growth factor 2. And it's quite important in um, the regulation of things like uh, diabetes and obesity. Given these findings, I asked Dr. Drake what she thought of this evidence and whether she thinks that these can explain all of the fetal origins hypothesis. So people show these differences, but I think we don't know whether they're a cause or a consequence. If you're looking at um, human studies and you are collecting blood or cells from the saliva or wherever you're collecting them from, from when, they're, when they are elderly and already affected by these diseases, you really don't know whether the changes that you're showing in the epigenetics are due to the diseases that they've got or whether they were programmed by the initial change. So if you are an offspring who is exposed to an adverse environment, for example, if we're talking about high blood pressure, which might be generated by an abnormal kidney development, that because your kidney has not developed normally, maybe the cells, the cell content of your kidney is different, that your kidney is made differently, that may change the epigenetic profile as a consequence of the cell types being different rather than the epigenetic changes being primary. So again, whether their cause or consequence is really not known and, and hasn't been well teased out in these studies yet. So gaining traction, gaining popularity, proven, no. Another interesting finding from the Dutch famine cohorts is the fact that some of the changes seem to show what's called transgenerational effects. That means that the effects are passed on to the next generation. So a famine affecting a fetus would not only cause increased rates of obesity in that particular individual, but in their offspring too. There's a lot of interest in how you might transmit these effects across generations and very difficult to tease out in human studies because there's the whole exposure to, to um, adverse environments. So people have tried to model these sorts of exposures in rodents, so using rats and mice, which have a shorter generation time, and you can expose them to similar things that you would do with humans, such as starvation to model the Dutch hunger winter, or overfeeding and obesity if you want to model obesity. And they do show that you appear to be able to generate the effect in the offspring that was directly exposed in the womb, but their offspring also seem to have similar effects. And in some studies you seem to be able to pass this across multiple generations. Now, if you're transmitting that through the maternal line, you might um, suppose that perhaps if you are a female and you're born to a mother who's experienced famine, so that you were starved in the womb, 
you therefore have an abnormal physiology so that when you become pregnant, you're more likely perhaps to have high blood pressure or increased stress hormone levels, and therefore you might directly affect your own offspring through generations. You may affect your offspring through the way you take care of your child. You know, might feed them differently or treat them differently. When you're transmitting things through the paternal line, it becomes a little bit more difficult um, to explain. Clearly in humans, if the father is around, there is still a, a major potential for him to influence behaviour or eating habits or, or whatever. But in the animal studies, where you still see those effects, that's a little bit more difficult to explain. And people have suggested that you may be able to affect the developing sperm or the developing eggs in some way that you might be able to transmit these um, effects across generations. And some people have suggested that epigenetic effects might be important there, although the data are still, I think, very controversial. Another extremely important area that this field of research is helping us with is the care of preterm babies. Only in the past few decades have we been able to significantly improve the survival of babies who are born preterm. That's generally considered before 37 weeks gestation. That's a time that would normally be spent developing inside the safety of the womb. With improved medical care, these babies can now survive outside the womb, but are often born significantly underweight and with underdeveloped organs. There is evidence to show that the effects that we see on babies born in famine conditions can also apply to these preterm babies. The preterm population are um, frequently smaller than you would expect even for their gestational age. Once they're delivered, of course, they live in an environment which is wholly unlike that which they should do in utero. They are fed differently, they're exposed to noise, pain, light, um, very different things to being in utero, so they're exposed to a huge amount of, I guess, what you could term very broad stress um, and differences in nutrition. And we do know that those individuals, so babies born preterm, whether or not they're of low birth weight, are at higher risk of all those things that the low birth weight baby that was born at term is, at higher risk of diabetes, of obesity, of hypertension, um, and also of neurodevelopmental disorders. Because preterm babies, uh, the extent um, to which we can um, help babies to survive now, haven't really lived that long in historical cohorts, um, studying them long term, is really something that's only just started. Um, but we certainly do see that there are increased risk in young adulthood, and it's probably a much more severe extent than just being born low birth weight at term. Um, so I think it's imperative that we follow individuals up, that we start trying to understand what the mechanisms are, um, and potentially there is lots that can be done, whether we change things on the neonatal unit in terms of feeding or the care that we provide whether we do early interventions once babies are discharged home, in terms of helping their development, intervening early before they go to school, whether we look at how we should be advising on feeding. I think there's an awful lot that, that can be done that's a really important population given the numbers of babies that are born preterm. So it's fantastic advances that we've made, but we, you know, we're really obliged to follow the babies up and see what we can do differently to make sure that not only do they survive, but they survive with the best quality of life that we can possibly give them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Anamnesis podcast. I'd like to send out a big thanks to Dr. Mandy Drake, who kindly gave up her time to have a chat with me for this episode. If you'd like to learn about these kinds of studies in a bit more detail, I'll put some links to articles in the show notes. As always, you can find these on our website. Um, that's anamnesiscast.com. That's A-N-A. -A 
M-N-E-S-I-S-Cast.com. You can find links to all the other episodes either there or in your podcast player of choice. Please feel free to subscribe to get our new episodes as soon as they're released. Um, and you can also follow us on uh, Twitter um, at AnamnesisCast. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, that's really helpful to new podcasts like us. Um, and tell anyone you think that might be interested. Once again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs>